This is critical revenue and easy revenue for the state to recoup moving forward. And so it it has to get done. We saw the office closings at our sister papers earlier this year, and we sort of thought perhaps that'll happen. And and in fact, that's what's coming to pass right now. One of my friends has called it the Super Bowl of vaccines. We have to be humble about, you know, COVID. We're learning, you know, something different every every week. Fate on our side, we will have a vaccine available as, as early as next Monday. This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. In the mix, you just heard Mashantucket Pequot Tribal Nation Chair Rodney Butler talking about sports gambling. Hartford Current reporter and frequent Wheelhouse panelist Daniela Altamari. We also heard Pfizer North America President for Vaccines David Herring and Yale School of Public Health Dr. Albert Coe in an interview with Dan Haar, who we hope will be joining us soon. Also, the last voice on that montage, Dr. Reginald Edie. He's co-chair of Connecticut's COVID-19 Vaccine Advisory Group, speaking on where we live just yesterday about when shots could start for healthcare workers. Uh, he said that they could be showing up as early as next Monday. On the panel today, I am happy to announce uh, making her wheelhouse debut today, Emily Brindley. She's a Hartford Current reporter. You hear her voice on those uh, twice weekly, uh, every twice uh, two days or so uh, when the governor has his briefing. I think it's Monday and Thursday now. Uh, Emily Brindley, welcome to the wheelhouse. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Also with us, Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show and a columnist at Hearst, Connecticut. Hi, Colin. I'd say good morning to anybody who never listens anyway. <laughs> and Dan Haar is a columnist and associate editor at Hearst, Connecticut. Dan, are you there on Zoom? Well, well, he's there, but we are having trouble hearing him. So hopefully we will be able uh, to have him join us. Dan, can you hear us now? Okay, we'll keep working on that. So uh, on Tuesday, there was some news, and I guess it's not unexpected that our positivity rate in the state continues to rise. It's nearly 9% now, and that's the highest single-day positivity rate in Connecticut since testing became widely available. Colin, uh, this, you know, we we knew this was going to happen, especially after the Thanksgiving holiday. uh, But, you know, what's your reaction when you hear this positivity rate rising? Well, as you say, we knew it was going to happen. We, uh, over the Thanksgiving weekend, fully nationalized this disease in a way that we had not before. You could you could manage to try to look at it uh, in terms of, of regions and in terms of states. Uh, I think that's going to be harder and harder to do. Uh, I also think that the wave that we're seeing right now, the post-Thanksgiving, you know, subwave, it's just getting started. The question I mean, I don't think anybody doubted very much that there would be uh, an uptick in the case rate uh, in the positive testing rate. I think the question is, is it going to spider web out? Um, you get, you know, maybe 10 people together in a house for Thanksgiving who haven't been together before. And one of them is, in fact, infectious. Uh, you're going to get some infections right there in that house. The question is, are those people going to infect other people? Uh, because if that happens, and I think it's the greater likelihood, uh, if that happens, you're going to see the rate move into the double digits. You're going to see uh, stresses on healthcare delivery, unlike anything we've seen so far in the pandemic. Mm. Uh, Emily, what do you think about the numbers right now? 
Well, I think the, the one point of caution that I always tell people is that uh, one day's worth of numbers is not a trend. So I think that we are going to have to continue to watch the numbers over the next few days to see if that high positivity rate continues. But it definitely does seem to me like it, it is the beginning of that post Thanksgiving spike. And as Colin said, the big concern here is hospitalizations. If you talk to uh, officials at hospitals and doctors in the hospitals, they're very concerned that this is going to be the beginning of another surge that, that could potentially really stress the system. And this time around, unlike in the spring, Connecticut and the Northeast region is not the only region that's spiking with cases. So we're seeing high case counts and high hospitalizations across the country. And that means for the hospitals that there is nowhere to pull in extra staff from. You can't call you can't call in nurses from, from the Midwest because they're already tied up in Midwest hospitals. So this time around, the real strain on the hospital systems is going to be in, in the staffing levels. And that's going to be the bottleneck even before we get to a bottleneck in the number of beds. Now, there have been uh, conversations uh, between uh, some doctors and the, the governor about uh, capacity. And so I'm just wondering, you know, it seems like the, the governor's taking time to have these meetings and to hear uh, these uh, healthcare workers. And But I'm wondering, Emily, you know, what does that mean as far as what the governor might be doing in the next couple of weeks or in the next month as we may see these cases continue to rise? Right. Yeah. So uh, about a, mm, a couple days before Thanksgiving, I believe it was November 24th, a number of doctors, a lot of them from Yale New Haven, they wrote a letter to Lamont asking him to close gyms and indoor dining to, to help avoid the Thanksgiving spike that we believe that we're beginning to see now. And you're right, Lamont did meet with a number of those doctors and uh, according to both the governor and to the doctors who were in the meeting, it was a productive meeting. The doctors said that, that the governor listened to them and heard their concerns. However, after that meeting, the governor has continued to say that he does not have any immediate plans to close down gyms or indoor dining. Um, so while he has certainly been willing to take the time to talk with people, it does not appear at this point that he's actually planning to take their suggestion to heart and to make the changes that they're asking for. And you're beginning to, to maybe see some more pressure on the governor as other states, uh, especially in the region, begin to, to consider closing down indoor dining. We saw that from Governor Andrew Cuomo in New York on, I believe it was on Monday, that he's considering closing down indoor dining if hospital rates don't stabilize. Um, that is something that so far, Governor Lamont has not been willing to say. So while he has said publicly that he, he leads with public health and that his decisions are based on public health, there clearly are other factors at play here as well. And, and that's something that I've heard frustration from doctors, um, that they're, they're concerned that, that they won't be able to handle the, the influx of patients. And there are things that you can do in the hospitals to help kind of to, to mitigate uh, that stress. But ideally, you just wouldn't have those patients becoming sick in the first place. Um, so, so far, we haven't really seen any movement from the governor on that, but it is definitely something to watch over the next couple of weeks as cases continue to rise. That's Emily Brinley, a Hartford Current reporter. Dan Haar, hopefully, is with us right now. Dan, can you hear me? Yes, I can. And can you hear me more than Yes, one? we can hear you. Thank you, Dan, Fantastic. for joining us. Great to be <laughs> We're here. excited to have you. <laughs> so I don't necessarily your... agree, but go ahead. Okay. Well, yeah, let, tell me why. I was going to say, I don't necessarily agree that the numbers we're seeing since Thanksgiving show a causal link between the hospitalizations and Thanksgiving activity. There's been up and down. We had a down week 
uh, 10 days, six to 10 days after Thanksgiving. So it, it, the numbers are still very noisy. And while I agree that there's frustration among people who want a further shutdown, the, the contact tracing and the hospitalization numbers don't necessarily show that what happened at Thanksgiving or what's happening now in, for example, gyms is the cause of increased infection. Mm. So when you are talking with people in the community, Dan, and also talking with officials, what are some of the reasons we're at this positivity rate of 9% right now? Well, I mean, I think people, well, first of all, we've had one day at, at approaching 9%. So they, the positivity rates have been up and down. That is a very scary number. Just to put it in perspective, the U.S. is at about 11%. Uh, unfortunately, we've been rising a lot faster than the U.S. average. And certainly states like Florida have been rising even, even slower than that. Um, people feel as though informal social gatherings rather than, for example, going to a restaurant with your bubble are the cause of infection. That is to say, if you have a household that's in a bubble of four people and you go to a restaurant and you sit in that restaurant indoors, there's not right now evidence that I've seen that's convincing that that group as a group is at greater risk than they would be doing you know, some other activity. Obviously, if you stay home, you're at zero risk and you don't go anywhere. Uh, but just, there's no and if I could just jump in real quick there, there actually was a study from the CDC showing that people who have uh, who test positive for for COVID-19 are much more likely to have eaten in indoor settings. So I do just want to throw that in there that there is some evidence that that there has been spread in restaurant settings. The key thing is the bubble, though. If you stay in your bubble in the restaurant, that's a lot less traced as a problem than if you go to most people that go to a restaurant are going out not with the people that they live with in their household that's the problem mm. colin what do you think because you'd mentioned the spider web effect and when we think about bubbles you know you're only as safe as uh, the precautions that your bubble is taking right um and and you know dan is correct that the state of thinking right now about the single biggest area of spread is the informal gatherings where people let down their guards they take off their masks they feel like they have a comfort level with their neighbors or family members that they haven't seen for a while or or whoever but that doesn't mean that other things are safe some of the things that we now know things that uh, particularly about the aerosolizing uh, of uh, of the transmissible virus uh, make us less comfortable with some of the arbitrary numbers that well, they weren't arbitrary. But at the beginning, for example, you heard six feet. Six feet is not really a meaningful number uh, anymore. Uh, I think 15 minutes was another number that got thrown around. These are all kind of based on early science, but it's it's a much trickier situation uh, than those hard numbers would make you think that it was. I, I, the way that I would think about a restaurant would be, if you knew the people at the table nearest to you were infectious, would you stay at your table? Or if you knew that you were infectious, would you expose the people at the nearest table uh, to you, to, to your disease? In other words, assume somebody in the equation is infectious and then ask yourself whether you should be there. Uh, and I actually think the answer you know, becomes pretty obvious unless, of course, you have a completely different attitude towards the disease itself. Mm -hmm. You wrote a column, uh, Colin, talking about uh, 
you know, people should stop celebrating the pandemic isn't over yet. And, and so I'm wondering if you could talk more about uh, that column and, you know, are people, is it about fatigue with uh, all the precautions or the the vaccine? We're hearing that doses are going to be coming into the state uh, pretty soon, that people are letting their guards down. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, to use the what has become a cliche, people are tired of the disease. The disease is not tired of people. Uh, and, and the vaccine, and Emily, I know, is going to, actually, Emily and Danny are both going to have a lot to say about this. The, the vaccines are going to roll out slowly. Even some of the earlier numbers, like numbers that seemed valid a week or two ago in terms of the, the allocations, they're going down. It turns out that, you know, all of these companies are facing supply chain problems, cold chain problems. Uh, you know, it's not going to be easy to get this into a massive population. And there are some big question marks about the vaccines. I mean, one of them is, do they provide? So there's a, a, a useful distinction is protective versus sterilizing immunity. Protective immunity means you get the vaccine, you never get an expression of the symptoms of COVID-19 because you got the vaccine. Um, sterilizing immunity means you get the vaccine and the disease can never get a foothold in you so that you could give it to somebody else while uh, asymptomatic. We know less than we would really need to know about whether that sterilizing immunity is conferred by these vaccines. We also don't know what happens six months after anybody gets the vaccine because we just don't have that data. Obviously, the, the trials are new enough or six months, nine months. Maybe everybody who who gets the vaccine nine months out has some kind of reaction we're not aware of. We're also going to go through some periods of panic. There's sort of a, a in math, the law of inevit inevitability that things happen. So if you vaccinate 100 million people, you're going to see a cluster of heart attacks or strokes or transverse myelitis or God knows what it's and, and it's going to maybe look like it's being caused by the vaccine and it's going to take some forensic science to figure out whether that's the case or not. So this whole vaccine thing, it's wonderful that we've gotten as far as we have, as fast as we have. But there's a lot of unknowns about it. And to, to bet everything on the idea that you're going to be uh, in a vaccinated environment where you don't really have to have the kinds of fears that you have now by May or June, as some federal spokespeople have been saying, I think, you know, it's probably a little bit of a false hope. I think it's a less likely scenario. The more likely scenario is you're going to be wearing your mask. You're going to be keeping uh, your distance. You're going to be washing your hands a lot for quite some time to come. Mm. Emily, what do you think about what Colin shared and what we still don't know yet about these vaccinations? Yeah, one of the biggest things, and I really agree with Colin on this point, that when people start getting vaccinated, first of all, you know, we're looking at medical workers beginning to be vaccinated probably next week. And that's extremely exciting. But for the general population, the state has said that it's aiming to get everybody vaccinated, everybody who wants to be vaccinated, to have all of those people vaccinated by early fall 2021. That is quite a ways away. So although the vaccination vaccinations are beginning to roll out pretty soon, for most everybody, it's still it's still a number of months off. And as Colin said, even once we get vaccinated, we don't know for sure if people who've been vaccinated will be able to spread the virus to other people. And as, as public officials have said throughout the pandemic, you wear your mask to protect other people from the virus that you might be carrying. So once you get vaccinated, you still will have to continue to wear a mask, to social distance, to, to hand wash, and, and all of those factors that we're, we're dealing with now. The other thing is that, um, we're really going to have to have a large percent of the population 
receive the vaccine before we reach herd immunity. I was talking yesterday to um, Dr. Luke Davis down at, at Yale, and he estimated that about 70% of the population will need to have a successful vaccination in order to reach herd immunity for coronavirus. And I'll point out too here that um, herd immunity depends on the, the contagiousness of the virus. So different percentages of people need to be vaccinated in order to reach herd immunity, depending on, on the specific disease that we're discussing. So with COVID, it's about 70%. Um, and, and there will be some vaccinations that are not successful. So we're talking close to about 80% of Connecticut residents will need to take the vaccine in order to get us to herd immunity. And that's gonna take some time. So we are looking at, at still a number of months before we can start talking about returning to what we think of as, as normal life. Hmm. You used the phrase successful vaccination. Uh, Dan, I'm thinking about the fact that with the Pfizer, you know, I also think maybe Moderna, you have this, the two doses. And so the idea that people may not follow up uh, with that second dose, that's problematic. Uh, what else could go there's, wrong in this vaccine distribution? There's a lot that could go wrong, not even so much in the, in the distribution. Hmm. I would remind you that, or everyone, that the Pfizer and Moderna studies were I believe 22 and 24 months respectively, they may have both been 22 month studies, but there's a reason why vaccinations have always taken a couple of years. And by the way, it was almost never approved after just one uh, phase three study, one two year study. Um, to, to give a, a, a comparison, the famous Connecticut made flu block vaccine, which was made by now Sanofi, protein sciences took 13 years of studies for a disease we knew pretty much everything about, which was the flu. This is a disease we don't know anything about. So I would say that the vaccines, I don't want to sound like a, a fear monger, the vaccines are most likely safe because the safety studies are pretty rigorous early on. But we, again, to reiterate what Colin said, just don't know what they're going to do exactly. But I would take a step back and I would say that broadly, the vaccine mentality that we're seeing, the vaccine as the savior, the vaccine as the pill that we can take, and I get that it's a shot, not a pill, the pill that we can take to make everything better, replicates and reflects the typical American approach to everything. The Civil Rights Act will cure racism. Fuel standards will cure uh, uh, global warming. Uh, Throughout every aspect of culture, we're looking for quick, cheap solutions. The reason we have a pandemic is because we have a crisis in public health. Just yesterday, United Healthcare came out with a report. Obesity is up 15% in just eight years. That's a lot. We are now over 30% of Americans that are obese. Anyone who thinks that's unrelated to this pandemic is crazy. Mm. I want to mention a panelist on the wheelhouse, uh, Dr. Jonathan Wharton over at Southern Connecticut State University. Uh, he'd had uh, COVID. He just tweeted that he's finally tested negative twice. Uh, that's great news, Jonathan. We're glad that you're doing better. Uh, you know, I wanted to move on, Emily, uh, from this discussion and talking about, you know, there's been so many uh, guidelines and policy changes since this pandemic began. Uh, you know, certain businesses have never been able to reopen since March, and that means that's including bars that uh, you've reported on the state. Supreme Court scheduled to hear arguments this Friday about whether the governor went beyond his authority when he shut down bars in Connecticut because of the pandemic. That suit brought by Christine Casey, who owns a bar in Milford, Connecticut. What can you tell us about uh, what she's arguing? Yeah, so her argument here um, is basically 
that the governor, as you said, that he stepped beyond his his constitutional authority and and shut down shut down bars and, and other businesses um, in in the way that the state legislator should have done that. So her argument is that he kind of overstepped and took on the role of of the state legislator there. Um, I will say that the Superior Court has already ruled on on that case and and they sided with the governor. Um, So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Um, I believe that is beginning on Friday. But yeah, so her argument is basically a constitutional argument that the governor has overstepped. That is something that has been brought up in other states as well. Um, So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out in Connecticut. Colin, what do you think about this suit before the Supreme Court now? Um, not having actually read any briefs or arguments, it's a little, I'm a little reluctant to comment. I mean, this is probably going to have to devolve into what's known in law as an allocation argument. In other words, where is power allocated? The statutes are pretty clear about this. And the relevant statute, for those of you playing along at home, the rele- relevant statute would be 28-9 subsection B paragraph 1 <laughs> that, that declares that the governor can declare a civil pre- preparedness or public health emergency. And in so doing, he may modify or suspend in whole or in part any statute, regulation, or requirement that he finds to be in conflict with the efficient and expeditious execution of civil preparedness functions or the protections of the public health. I don't think you could be much more clear than that. It actually gives Ned Lamont way more power than he has exercised so far. Um, So, you know, I, I think he's followed the law. He could, the, the the statute itself is broad enough, he could do a ton more than he's doing and not break that law. So the argument before the Supreme Court has to be an allocation argument that he, regardless of the statute, and maybe arguing that that statute needs to be modified or struck down, that he is doing something that legislatures are supposed to do, which is what Emily said at the outset. Mm. Uh, Dan, I see I was just going to say, Lucy, there was one more point that I wanted to make about about this case. Um, so the Casey here, the, the, the woman bringing the suit, she's also arguing that um, the pandemic does not constitute a, a quote, serious disaster or, or a catastrophe under state law because the way that the law is written that, that allows the governor to take these kind of wide latitudes during a, a public health crisis the the law was written kind of with natural disasters in mind, um, you know, hurricanes and things like that. And obviously, a pandemic does not fall under that same category. So they are also arguing that a pandemic doesn't constitute legally a serious disaster. She's going to lose on that point. I mean, the they're going to lose on they're going to lose on the whole point. Yeah. <laughs> but the underlying issue here is that what we're seeing is the frustration of bar owners. We've basically shut down a whole sub industry. And the state hasn't really done anything or certainly not enough except for the small business loans for these businesses. And they really have to step in and do a lot more economically. You can't just say you're going to shoulder the burden because obviously this is dangerous activity. Every study shows that they're going to lose unanimously in the state Supreme Court. We know who's on the state Supreme Court. We know what they've said in general. This, the, the, not only did the legislature approve this implicitly, but they approved it explicitly with votes twice, including a near unanimous vote five months, six months after the fact to renew it until February. So there's no question about the legal standing. The issue here is we're seeing right, correct, fair frustration 
by this bar owner and bar owners across the state. Yeah, could I just build on that? I, I said this last week, but I want to say it again. I think Ned Lamont, when he meets with the healthcare workers and the physicians and stuff, when he shares the camera and microphone with an infectious disease expert, which I, I believe he did over the past week, mm-hmm. he's sending a signal. He's saying they they're right they have a point and and he's he's also his hands are somewhat tied you know uh, he can't do as much as they would like him to do even though he knows that that's really the most prudent public health course and part of the problem is there's no federal relief and now we're starting to talk about waking up the 900 billion dollar uh, bill i mean if he had federal money in hand that he could give to some of these sectors that danny's talking about uh, I think he'd be singing a very different tune. I think he'd be shutting down more stuff and saying, I will keep you financially whole until I can get you open again. But I think that's hard given the actual financial resources that exist at the state level. Mm-hmm. Enter our hero, Rosa DeLauro. <laughs> and we'll be talking about her uh, soon enough. But Dan, tell me more about uh, what you've been hearing from restaurants because you made the point and we've heard that and we just heard Colin mention it too. If there was more money, there'd be a way to help these businesses for at least a few more months. But the tap is run dry until the the, the federal government maybe passes the second coronavirus uh, stimulus relief. But what are you hearing from restaurants? What more do they want? The restaurants are okay with the 50 percent restriction. They're not happy about it, but they're okay with it. They really, really, really want to keep indoor dining as long as they can, and they get that it's not open in New York and other states. They are not okay with the 10 o'clock shutdown, but that's a very small subset of restaurants. Most restaurants are daytime places and early evening places, but the ones that that are sort of high profile are not happy about the 10 o'clock shutdown. The bottom line is that they, like the governor, are in a tough position. The restaurant owners, uh, like Steve Abrams, of Trumbull Kitchen, he actually said to me that he preferred to keep the 50% over the 75%, even though he would lose money. So I do not want people to think that these restaurant owners are economic thoughts, economically thinking only. They really are out for the public good. They're working really, really hard to make this work. But if they go out of business, that's really bad. And obviously we have to do something about that. Mm. Let's see. I wanted to, to jump in here real quick because, um, you know, the, the point about the federal funding and how that maybe would allow Governor Lamont to, to, to do some more business closures and to put in place some more restrictions, although that makes logical sense. Uh, at a press conference last week, the governor was asked about this, and he actually said that the federal funding wasn't affecting his decision on whether or not to close indoor dining. So I think there is there is a question here about how much how much the governor um, would change his mind or change his approach if there was more more spending? Um, you know, I I think that there are some factors at play here with the governor wanting to keep businesses open even if they have the support to close, and that's something that has to be taken into account as well. Mm. Lots of calls uh, to keep ordering takeout from restaurants, but that doesn't uh, pay uh, the people, uh, the wait staff, the servers, uh, and keep them employed. And, and that is the the challenge as we keep moving into this uh, winter. Uh, you're hearing Emily Brindley, Hartford Current reporter. Also, Dan Haar here, columnist and associate editor at Hearst, Connecticut, and Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show and a columnist at Hearst, Connecticut. Coming up, an unwelcome change has come to a Hartford institution that's older than the nation. We'll talk about that right after a break. 
I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. On Friday, the Hartford Current announced it will shut down its newsroom December 27th. Now, the paper will still operate, but reporters and editors will stop gathering in the building right across the street from the armory on Broad Street in Hartford. Ownership recently announced that the paper will also no longer be printed in Hartford. Emily Brindley is with us, a Hartford Current reporter, Dan Haar, Colin McEnroe. You've all have connections to the Hartford Current. Emily, I'll start with you. How did you and your colleagues take the news? Well, it was something that was not entirely unexpected. Um, our, our Tribune Publishing, they have closed the newsrooms of a couple of our sister papers uh, this year. So it wasn't entirely unexpected. That said, it is very different to expect something to happen than it is to actually hear mm-hmm. that it's happening. Um, I think it was a pretty devastating day for, for everybody. And you know, for me personally, it's something that I still am wrapping my my mind around. And it's it's also happening so fast. You know, as you said, December 27th um, is, is when the, the building is going to be closed. And that's just uh, a few weeks away now at this point. So it really is extremely disheartening. Um, and it's it's been a difficult few days, that's for sure. Now, we've all been working remotely in some capacity uh, if we work in the news business, but there's something about being in a newsroom, Colin, and the fact that this newsroom will be closing, you know, it has ripple effects. Right. So I think Danny is going to turn out to have the longest time in that building. Uh, But I was there starting with my internship in 1975 through 1995. So 20 years for me uh, in that building. Uh, One thing I just quickly want to say, because I know we're talking about newsrooms for a reason, but, uh, you know, a a newspaper building is a lot more than that. When I was there, this is how old I am, uh, when I would go down to to what was called the composing room, some of the, I think mostly the advertising was still being struck in hot lead, the, the, the type was being set by hot lead machines. Uh, But all over the building, there are people doing really interesting jobs. uh, And and it all kind of ties together to produce what people used to call the daily miracle uh, of a newspaper rolling off the presses. Um, There's a lot that goes on in that building. But just to focus on the newsroom for a second. And and the other, I mean, when I worked at The Current, I also worked a lot in feature departments and stuff like that, that I guess aren't technically the newsroom. There's a lot of collective thinking that goes on, a lot of trading of ideas. Uh, Oh, you were in the newsroom, Colin. I was in the newsroom, but how about when I was in the Sunday room? Well, I didn't, never mind. Um, the, uh, I got more of an education there than I got uh, in four years at a fairly prestigious American university. You just learn a lot of stuff really fast because you have to and because you're surrounded by people who are really battle-tested and know what they're doing. And, and to me, that's probably the biggest worry. If we start to move away from that, the, the young reporters who come along, you, you just learn this incalculable amount of stuff working in a setting with, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 other completely crazy people facing deadlines. They don't, you know, you you learn it because you have to learn it. Dan? I'm sorry, if I could just add a really quick what Colin said. It's a mix for me between the personal and the professional. I was there when you start the clock at freelancing as a photographer. I was there for 37 years. Uh, To me, what comes to mind are really all the personal relationships, the stories. The Hartford Current is not a closed newsroom like other closed newsrooms. The Hartford Current is not like other places. The Current has this amazing tradition of excellence that goes to people that like Jack Zaman and Colin McEnroe and and Barbara Rossner and it's just Lisa Chetical. It just goes on and on. And I don't think that I'm talking just because I'm a veteran or an alum of that place. 
over and over and over, we hear people say all over the country in the Hartford current diaspora, those were the most amazing professional years of my life. And so to see that close, to me, it ultimately comes down to a personal sadness. Of course, all of society is moving in that direction to the detriment. Uh, but Tribune and especially the current owner have been nothing but horrible owners since 2000. I see no reason why the company called Tribune has ever existed. They've never added anything on a corporate level to that great newspaper. Mm. Emily, again, you're still with the, the Hartford Current. And when Colin was talking about uh, the amount of, of education that people get just working together in a newsroom, I'm wondering if you can talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. So as, as a young reporter, um, I can definitely vouch for what Colin's saying there about how much you learn by just listening to the other people who are in the newsroom. I, I think that I learned the most definitely just by eavesdropping on other people's conversations as they're doing phone interviews, as they're talking to their editors, as they're hashing out story ideas. That is definitely how you learn how to be a good journalist. And it, you also see the, the different approaches that you can take. Um, you know, different reporters have different styles, and you get to see all of those styles when you're working in the newsroom. It's it's really an invaluable learning experience. And as you as you learn more and more, you also start to take advantage of um, of the of the colleagues that are around you and and use them as sounding boards. And that kind of interaction is just really not as possible when people are working remotely. We've seen that during the pandemic. Um, and what I always tell people is that during the pandemic, we've been surviving remotely because we have to. And we will do what it takes to put out a good paper every day. We'll do what it takes to, to give our readers the coverage that they deserve. But we have always done that work knowing that there is a light at the end of the tunnel and that we would return to the newsroom at some point. And now that light at the end of the tunnel has been extinguished. And you know, this remote working, as I said, it's survivable for now, but I don't think that it's sustainable in the long, long term. Colin, I know we're focusing on the Hartford Current, but what does this mean for newspapers in general as we've been hearing about how newsrooms are being restructured and there's fewer and fewer reporters covering communities? Yeah, I, you know, look, it, it hasn't been good in that way. On the other hand, to sort of build on what Danny was saying, there's a lot of different ways to run a newspaper chain. And right now, he and I are both working for Hearst. Uh, they have a more expansive idea of what you can do uh, and what kind of resources they're willing to put in to creating a different kind uh, of product. Um, you know, I, I don't think it has to be bad. I don't think it has to be as bad as Alden and Trib have made it. And I mean, the other part of it is that, you know, all of these okay. scarcities create a kind of... Um, an opportunity for innovation and to do different kinds of things and to get into podcasting and develop other kinds of digital news. CT News Junkie, uh, Connecticut Mirror. I mean, they, they've proven that there are other ways to do this job. I just want to say that sitting next to John Lender for a short four years in my career was, I never saw him because of the piles of stuff, but I sat next to him <laughs> and I could hear him behind there. It was just an unbelievable, and, and that's picking just one person. It's it's exactly what Emily said. And the, the hope in this is that Class B space in the fringes of a downtown can cost, I figure for the cost of two reporters, the Hartford Current can have space, not in that building necessarily, but can have space. And so that's the sort of hope 
going forward. There's no reason why this idiotic decision needs to be sustained over a long period. All right, I'm, we're going to switch uh, gears here. I think Lucy has lost her audio, so I'm going to stage a coup d'etat until I hear her voice uh, in my headphones. So uh, we sort of alluded to this before. Rosa DeLauro um, is going to be the House Appropriations Committee uh, chairperson, uh, and she's already starting to, to talk. I guess, the, you know, one of the questions that I've had for a long time, Danny, is you know, even before this, before Rosa, is like, how much does this necessarily entitle any particular state to expect? In other words, my sense is she's the appropriations chair. That doesn't mean New Haven can get a monorail uh, just by picking up the phone, right? I, I, I don't think we really know what it means for Connecticut. There are two levels at which it means something. The first is the sort of dark money, I don't mean electoral dark money, but government dark money under the table. And it, it okay. certainly does go to people who are in power. And I would, I'm not accusing anybody of anything here, but we've seen it happen in the state legislature where West Hartford lost a key committee chairman uh, and that cost the town some money. Uh, the second area is in policy. So for example, under Rosa DeLauro, we're a lot more likely to see an infrastructure bill, or at least to see her fighting for an infrastructure bill. Rosa DeLauro likes to spend money. Since it's federal money, we've learned under Donald Trump that you can borrow a trillion dollars at the federal level and it doesn't matter. No Republican ever again going forward for the rest of recorded time or the rest of future time will ever be able to complain about government borrowing to fund operations because of a shortfall. That debate is over. And so we're going to see the Democrats look to borrow more for regular operations. And that means more money for states that need things like Connecticut because we're an old state. I think Lucy's back. Lucy, are you back? Okay, maybe not. So, um, uh, Emily, let's kind of look at this another way. One of the ways that I've thought about it is, yes, I mean, Rosa will probably, in, in some of the ways that Danny's suggesting, uh, ultimately help out Connecticut and, and other similar states. But to me, what's more significant is that Connecticut has kind of got the stars lined up generally uh, in its favor. Ned Lamont early on uh, bet Biden and bet big on Biden. Uh, so you know, you've got a president who is disposed towards the state in essentially a pretty friendly way. You've got Johanna Hayes. Uh, an early Kamala Harris backer. You've got uh, Rosa DeLauro uh, and John Larson, both with you know pretty significant jobs in the House. I mean, when you look at it that way, uh, at least the likelihood that we're going to get screwed or shafted goes way, way down. Yeah, and I think you know it's obviously something that's important for the for the state of Connecticut, given the state's reliance on on federal defense spending. Um, but it is really interesting to see to see such a small state begin to, to make such big moves here. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, it's, it's, it's something that as, as a local reporter, you know, we may not see Connecticut in the, the national spotlight all that often, but here, here the state really is kind of stepping up and, and punching above its weight, I would say. Um, one other thing I did want to point out is that obviously uh, Delora is, is going to be the first Connecticuter to lead the, the House Appropriations Committee. So it's a clearly a big first, but um, it is also a second. She will be the second woman to hold that title after the current chair, Representative Lowy from New York, retires. So there's we got have both a, a first and, and a second happening here, which is kind of exciting. 
Um, I, we're going to go to a break uh, pretty quickly. I, I'll just call on myself uh, as a panelist for a second and say, oh, "Yeah, Colin, what do you think? <laughs> what do I think? Um, what I think is that we've been through a period where a president, in a way that has never happened in my lifetime, has nakedly asserted that states that went for him in the 2016 election have a different and more privileged status than states that did not. He said this over and over, that he doesn't think uh, about those two kinds of states in the same way. And that's something we really need to get past. And, and I hope Biden truly means it when he says that he's the president of all the states and all the people. Uh, and and I, for that reason, I'm less inclined to lean hard right now on the idea that Rosa DeLauro, as a probes chairman, is going to do great things for Connecticut. I think she needs to do great things for all 50 states and get it really clear. Uh, they all need that to, to make that statement that the federal government is there for all of the states, irrespective of how they voted uh, in, in a federal election. All right, we're going to take know, a break. Hopefully, Lucy will be back uh, when we come back from the break. Uh, and if not, who knows? Maybe I'll, we'll have Danny host for a while. This is The Wheelhouse on Connecticut Public Radio. Hopefully you can hear me. Colin, can you hear me? So I'm on Zoom right now, and it's difficult uh, to hear uh, the guests. But I'm just going to go right into the next the next uh, topic, and that's going to be online gambling. Uh, Dan Hart, what can you tell us? There's this agreement between the Mashantucket Pequot Tribe and DraftKings. Yeah, that agreement doesn't mean anything at all. DraftKings will go wherever <laughs> they're invited. And the uh, tribes, especially Foxwoods, have tried to say we're the only holders of the right to have sports gambling and online gaming in Connecticut. And that's been the holdup for three years. And that continues to be a head uh, a, a blockage. Uh, we understand that they're back negotiating now. And that's great. They've been on and off negotiating since, I think, 2018. And it, it just has to come to an end. These other entities... The uh, Sportech, which runs the uh, OTB locations and the Connecticut Lottery, have to be part of the equation. And the tribes are sticking to this word, casino game. And that's what they have the exclusive right to. And that's where we are. This has just been going on for years. They successfully waited out MGM, but they can't wait out the Lotto and Sportech because they're here. So other states have online gaming. I'm thinking Pennsylvania and New Jersey. Slot revenue continues to fall in this state. That has cushions on state finances, Dan. So, I mean, is this something that the governor and the tribes are going to have to figure out soon at some point? Or what do you think is going to happen this session? We passed a bill in 2017 approving online gaming and sports betting pending an agreement with the tribes. So we're losing hundreds of millions of now, well, maybe, yeah, I would say hundreds of millions over the years, hundreds of millions of dollars on this that New Jersey and other states are realizing. On the other hand, anyone who thinks gambling in general is anything but moving money from relatively poorer people to the state taxpayers as a whole is, is also crazy. 
<laughs> Colin, what's your take on this? Well, there, there does seem to be a shift, uh, and uh, I think Paz has a piece about this uh, today, where this, typically the pattern has been, as kind of Danny is sketching out, uh, the state starts considering something like sports betting or uh, iGaming, I guess is what we're kind of calling this other kind of thing where you basically bet on your phone or, or, or whatever. Uh, the state starts talking about this. Everybody wants to be a player in it. At some point, the tribes come forward and say, well, if you do that, it would val- if, you, if you let other players in, it will invalidate the agreement that gives you 25% of our slot handle. Um, you know, can you afford to do, live without that? It does look as though the, the Lamont administration, rather than letting that cycle repeat itself, is starting with a conversation with the tribes. And uh, I don't really know what that means. Uh, Rodney uh, Butler, uh, one of the tribal leaders, chairman of the Mashantucket Pequot, said the state's share, uh, if we were to get into online game, gambling and sports betting, would be 40 to $60 million a year. Not actually having seen the proposal, I don't even understand how that works. Like, Danny, do you know, when we talk about this stuff, and I think sports betting and iGaming need to be talked about separately, and I think they will be talked about separately, but are we just getting 25% of that handle too? Because that's not written into the original Weicker era agreement, right? That was 25% of slots. So how is it that the whole new agreement has to be struck? And the structure is different than slots because it's it's not a revenue model but it's a it's a an amount that's bet rather than the amount that's won uh and so it's a little bit technical it was explained to me once i don't know that it's important the bottom line is money flows and the state is going to get a cut of that right but it has to be agreed upon as you said it's not part of the existing compact from 1992 and 96. and lucy um i i know that i have a tendency as a coronavirus to link everything back to coronavirus. But I think I think it would be missing a beat here if we didn't talk about how COVID might affect um, these agreements because, you know, coronavirus has changed basically our whole world. And we're going to see effects of that for, for years to come. And so you know, the, the, the revenue that the state has lost um, throughout the pandemic and the casinos have been hurting as well. And that could definitely play a factor in getting people to kind of shift their positions a little bit and, and put something through all the way. We've got three minutes left. Uh, feats of strength. Airing of grievances. Uh, feet to Colin. Thank you for picking up when my comrex dropped. Go ahead. <laughs> um, very quickly, Gabriel. My feet of strength is Gabriel Sterling, a Republican official who is the voting system implementation manager in Georgia. He's the guy who really stood up and he called out President Trump in a four-minute rebuke last week. Uh, as somebody needed to say it, Sterling has shown a tremendous amount of courage for his trouble. He's starting to get death threats. Dan Hiller. Feet of strength is the staff at the Hartford Current. I know we're competitors. Uh, I have a little bit more of a personal stake in it, but I'll give them the feet of strength. Obviously, we're all working remotely now, but they're working remotely under the repressive regime of a company that should not exist. Uh, And as for airing of grievances, I, I think the lawsuit saying that the governor can't shut down bars is a grievance, but with a asterisk that they have a point about their economic situation. And Emily Brindley, you get the last word. Uh, Feet of strength goes to the many, many Connecticut residents who have reached out um, to the current guild and and individual current staff members to offer support uh, after we heard that we were losing our newsroom. I've been just absolutely floored at the number of people who have offered kind words and genuine sympathy for us. And that support really, it's um, for me, it's boosted my spirit. So, so many, many thanks to all those people who have reached out to us. 
Well, Emily Brindley, thank you for joining us again. You uh, did a great job on your first wheelhouse, Hartford Current Reporter. Thank you, Lucy. <laughs> also here, Dan Hall, our columnist and associate editor at Hearst, Connecticut. Thanks, Dan, and Colin McEnroe, host of the Colin McEnroe Show. Thanks also to our tech producer, Kat Pastor, and our producer, Matt Dwyer. We'll be back next week.